everyone, and welcome back to the 34th episode of Soldiers of Cinema Podcast. I'm Colin McFader, and as always, I'm joined by Clark Coffey. Hey, hey, How's hey! How's it going? Hey, man, it's going great. I couldn't be more excited for the film that we mm-hmm. are about to discuss today. Yeah, the uh, grand reveal. Uh, the grand reveal, yeah, go ahead. If you haven't ahead. read the title of this episode, um, <laughs> we are right. going to be doing uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Rumblefish from, uh, from 1983. Yeah, um, and I, which, I, yeah, I, it's your, it's your, really it's my baby. Movie. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, you know, in the same way. So we've, we've done, you know, we did Mad Max, the trilogy, and I talked about how that was, you know, a really important uh, series of films from my childhood, and specifically the Road Warrior. Uh, but, but you know, if if you held a gun to my head and you said, so, but please, nobody do that. But if you held a gun to my head and somebody <laughs> said, okay, you got to pick one, you got to pick one film that like sums up your love of cinema so that's that i mean i don't know another way to make a more significant statement than that as far as what's your favorite film so the film that sums up my love of cinema more than any other film i've ever seen is rumblefish mm-hmm. so i am and extre- so i hadn't actually never i I'd, I'd never, never seen, seen it before so I'd, i had seen yeah. the outsiders which was made kind of back to back with this yep. Um, yep not planned you know when they were doing the outsiders he wasn't he hadn't prior to that being like, I'm going to do a double, you know, S.C. Hinton feature kind of thing. Um, but uh, midway but through it, the production of The Outsiders, he kind of realized that he wanted to do Rumblefish. And so he and S.C. Hinton um, used their days off from The Outsiders to write this screenplay. Yeah. Um, and there's a few changes from the screenplay or from the book, but it's actually quite similar as far as uh, I'm aware. I've never actually read the Rumblefish book. I've read The Outsiders and seen yeah. the movie and stuff like that. But yeah, this is the first time that I've That's seen. So, so cool. very in stark contrast to Clark, who, you, you know, again, as a kid, <laughs> well, it'll a really be great. important movie to you and kind of throughout your life. Whereas it- me, it was, I'd first seen it. Yeah, the, you know, in the past few days. So. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I think that's going to be great because, it, you know, whereas I, you know, I have this like rich personal history with it. And, you know, I can speak to, to that. I mean, you know, I, what I can't do, though, is speak with any objectivity to this film. So mm-hmm. that's going to be fun that you're going to be able to do that. And, you know, you're also going to have a unique perspective, I think, a little bit from, uh, you know, I grew up in the Midwest. And so, you know, this film was shot in Tulsa. And we can talk about this a bit more uh, as we go through the podcast. But, you know, for me, this film very much like feels close to how I grew up and where I grew up. And, uh, you know, for you, having not grown up in the States, uh, it'll be interesting to kind of, you know, you'll have a different take a little bit on the geography of this film and everything, too. So, mm-hmm. yeah, um, we don't really have Midwest culture up here. We have prairie culture. But um, <laughs> I think what's interesting yeah. about that, you you mentioned that and this does sort of relate to both our relationships with the movie and the movie itself is that. Um, the U.S. is very much built kind of like around the coasts. Like mm-hmm. the coasts are the most populated. They're kind of the big parts of the states. And yeah. the center is, you know, it's the flyover states, right? Right. Whereas here, it's very, you know, like I live in Toronto. And um, Toronto is only a 45-minute flight to New York. But Toronto is not near the ocean. It's, it's you know, our, our east coast goes out a lot more east than the U.S. east coast. So to get to, you know, Newfoundland or even Nova Scotia, it's a good two three day drive yeah um and those places are very you know not totally as sparsely populated there's cities there but they're not the big you know financial economic cultural centers like in the states uh we've vancouver out west of course which is on the coast but 
But, you know, Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver are kind of the big three cities here, and Montreal and Toronto are both located pretty centrally within the country. So yeah. we kind of don't have that same, um, like, the desire of, of, like, opportunity being on the coast or, yeah. or this, like, this drive to go out to the, the coasts, um, whereas the States really does. And that's a big theme in this movie is this drive to escape kind of the Midwest and, and you know, yeah. um, get to get to... I guess you could call it like the end goal, which is the ocean. Get to the ocean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that and that Western expansion and kind of manifest destiny, those are, Mm -hmm. I think those are things that are wrapped up a little bit into the story too. Uh, Yes, yeah. So yeah, we're good to talk about all those things. But I, you know, hopefully if you're listening, you've seen this film. And if you haven't, boy, I I mean, clearly, as you can tell, I highly recommend you see it. But, Mm -hmm. you know, just to kind of give like a little bit of an overbook. I mean, so like you'd mentioned, Cullen, it's it's based on a book by S.E. Susie Hinton. Uh, and Coppola wrote it with Hinton, like you said, while they were working on Outsiders, which was mm-hmm. also written by S.E. Hinton. Uh, she also wrote text. It's uh, text. It's a trilogy of, st- of stories for young adults. Mm-hmm. She kind of is not that uh, clearly, uh, you know, um, y- like literature for young people existed before S.E. Hinton. Of course, I mean Tom Sawyer and catcher in the ride there's a lot of books but but she is kind of credited with kind of creating or popularizing the modern like literature for youth mm-hmm. uh, the genre on its own yeah, yeah genre so did you read own. um like the outsiders and stuff like that when you were in middle school and stuff because i did it was yeah you know, in the so i read outsiders and, that, so. and yeah. i'm trying to remember i almost feel like it might have been canon i almost feel like it was part of the curriculum but mm-hmm. i did not and the, this is wild. I know everybody out there is going to, you know, uh, as much as I love Rumblefish, how could I have not? I have not read Rumblefish. Interesting. Okay. I have yeah. not read the original book, uh, It, which, of course, now that I hear myself say that, uh, I really should do so. It's on my list. But, um, I mean, you've got such amazing talent in this film. Like we said, mm-hmm. you know, Coppola directs. Uh, you've got Matt Dillon starring as Rusty James, you have Mickey Rourke, and I'll talk about him more when we get to the performances, but mm-hmm. to me, this is one of the uh, the most significant performances of my young career, and or young life, rather, I mean, sorry, and was a, a significant impetus for me to even pursue acting and filmmaking. We've got a young Diane Lane. We've got a really young Nicolas Cage. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, th- yeah. I think this is maybe his Pre second... Moonstruck, pre all that. Yeah, yeah. He's like 19, I think. Uh, yeah. It's amazing. You've got a young Chris Penn, Diana Scarwood. You've got Dennis Hopper. Mm-hmm. Uh, of and course, be... noted uh, uh, Coppola alum. So, and you've got yeah. Tom Waits. What? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it's amazing. And look, you're talking about a black and white film uh, shot on that beautiful Plus X 5231, that Eastman stock that, um, at least in part, uh, uh, that the Elephant Man that we recently yeah. did, we shot on. And Cullen, I know you're super excited about this. This thing was shot wide, wide, mm-hmm. wide. Very a wide, l- yes. <laughs> a lot of this is shot at, you know, less than 10 millimeters, 9.8 you yeah. know, 25 and 35, I think, is maybe the longest lens they used, except for there, there's one kind of walk and talk where oh, Lawrence Fishburne. Come on. I did. I for, yeah. And Lawrence, Lawrence is yeah. in it. Who's also in Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Who's also in Apocalypse Now. Um, I mean, it's just it's just I, I mean, this this film is just bursting at the seams with talent. 
mm-hmm. and and all this youth and energy. It's such a such a such a fun film. So yeah. let's yeah. talk. I mean, let's jump in then. Let's talk about kind of and compare and contrast our personal experiences with the film. I mean, let's start with you. Mm-hmm. You you've just watched it in the past couple of days. Like, mm-hmm. tell us, tell me about your experience with the film. What you thought watching so- it? Yeah. As I said, um, you know, The Outsiders was in my curriculum as a, as a kid in middle school, and we watched the movie then. And I remember not like I knew, of course, who Francis Ford Coppola was. I think it was probably grade eight when we when we watched it. And so I'd seen The Godfather, I'd seen Apocalypse Now, and I think The Outsiders kind of underwhelmed me because of that. And so had I known that this was made back to back to that before going into it, I I likely would have had a different impression going in and I probably would have thought, okay, I didn't love the outsiders, so I might not love this one. Um, but I actually didn't know until, you know, basically while I was watching it, uh, realized that half the cast was the same, same location. And so afterwards, you know, found out that of course they were shot back to back. Um, and, um, I, I loved it. You know, I, again, I didn't know what to expect, had no idea going into it. I knew it was Coppola and I knew, you know, who was in it. I knew vaguely what it was about. Um, but didn't realize how how artistic the film was, how um, you know almost transcendent of of like time um, in terms of like decade set mm. or 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 period set that it it pulls so much from so many different aspects of especially American life, um, and so I think that that's really inter- it was really interesting to me just the way that it handled all that material yeah. and how the characters again like the characters the relationships between the friends almost speak like they're coming from the 1950s but it's yeah. set in the like they play you know a, a stand up arcade game at one yeah. point they so it's not set in the 50s there's it's you know and then Dennis Hopper plays timeless. like this uh, yeah. you know is his the father but Dennis Hopper plays this kind of almost like vagabond depression era like fedora wearing flask drinking drunk <laughs> and it's like this really interesting you know, blend of, of almost like all the 20th century in the United States and all these different cultures and climates that the States kind of has, it kind of boils them all down and puts them into this one uh, motion picture while doing so in this avant-garde, yeah. um, like French new wave style. And I thought that I, you know, again, it was, I like watching a movie and being, um, you know, feeling like I've got the, the, the rug swept from under me, like feeling mm. like I had no idea what I was expecting and that this very much wasn't what I was expecting. I love doing that and I like that experience. And so I think that going into this and also that it really talked to my sensibilities about um, that, you know, and both you and I have kind of spoken about this before on the podcast, but that, you know, plot to me is never something that's super vital. I'm never, I'm not a plot person. I don't yeah. really like it. You know, as I always say, I could watch a movie that's nine hours of like beautiful images of trees. I, I, <laughs> I, I like like the visceral uh, imagery in film. I think that that's what really speaks to me. Um, and so I'm never someone who's like going to sit down and be like, well, this doesn't use the three act structure, you know, right. save the cat says that you should introduce uh, conflict <laughs> right. in this point of the movie. And if you don't, then right. you, you failed. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm not really interested in that aspect. And perhaps that's why I don't really consider myself much of a screenwriter. Um, even though I have written screenplays, it's not really the point of, of filmmaking that I like dive in on and that I really, I really, you know, care about uh, on a really deep level um and so this again this this film really spoke to me on, on that level as well that it was um it kind of spoke to my sensibilities and what i like about film which is um which is about the visceral kind of experience of watching not necessarily about 
understanding or or analyzing what's going on moment to moment in the script mm. but rather just kind of letting the experience wash over you and and um give you those emotional impact moments and give you the the uh the elements of filmmaking that i think really stand out to me which is like really strong performances really great camera work uh and 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 masterful rich storytelling in the cinematography um mm-hmm. and things like that and the direction um that's what really gets me and this movie kind of has all those things so so that was my first impression of it again this being so were you surprised were you i mean obviously i'm assuming that it was within seconds that you realized whoa this is not this is not outsiders team. yeah yeah i, I, I mean, was not i wouldn't say surprise is the right word um because again i didn't know that they were related i, I had i was unaware uh, yeah. but i would say that definitely um satisfied is as probably a bit, like almost this this feeling of of watching it and knowing it was Coppola, who's a director that I really respect and admire, even his lesser works I like a lot. Like, again, The Outsiders, I think, is a good movie. It's just not my favorite of his. Yeah. Um, and so I think that watching this almost made me go, this is what I thought The Outsiders was missing. Ah. That if, if The Outsiders took this less... Because The Outsiders also, to be fair, is much more of a planned out studio film. Whereas this was, because it was so off the cuff, he kind of just went... Um, and I think it was... Uh, who was he? Who did you do the Outsiders with? Was it MGM or Fox or someone? Whoever the studio was that was doing the Outsiders said that they didn't want to do Rumblefish, so he struck a deal with Universal. Yeah, um, kind of last minute, and so that almost worked out in his favor because Universal didn't have the chance to kind of jump on it and make all these notes in pre-production and sort of control the production of this film. He really had so much, and Copley even over, put over in his own was. money. Copley yes, even yeah. even self financed a bit of yeah. the roughly ten million dollar budget. But that's my my understanding is that they actually ran out of money, and Coppola, as he's had to do before with Apocalypse Now and other films, I mean, he puts his money where his mouth is, and he yes. he had to self finance. Yeah, so that it, it very is, much like Herzog does as well. Herzog has, has done yeah. it several times, and yeah. so yeah, I think that that kind of shows, you know, when a filmmaker really is passionate and. You know, to get into kind of what your relationship was, the that the this film is very personal for Coppola. That Coppola is, um, you know, he says that he connected to the source material because of his relationship with his brother. Yeah, um, who, who the it's film dedicated, was dedicated to. to. Yeah. yeah. So I think that it's really interesting that this is, you know, such a personal film for Coppola. And of course, you know, I've also got an older brother, but I think that your relationship with your brother is likely very different than than my relationship with my brother. So I'm curious to see and kind of hear about yeah what what was your you know, first viewing. Why does it stuck? Why is it stuck with you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the, good question. So, I, you know, I I can't. It's so it's funny. I you know I can't remember the exact you know the first time I ever watched it. That that the first viewing. I I have lost that memory. I don't know. When I think about this film, for me, it's like it just seems like this is a film that I have loved and cherished for so long that it's like a part of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that makes sense, I, you know, so I, 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 I kind of have the vaguest of recollections that and, and it's very likely that how I first watched this film was how I first watched many of the films that were significant to me when I was a child, which is like purely by chance, which mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. doesn't exist very much in today's day and age with how, uh, you know, s- stories are consumed. I refuse to use the word content, you know, screw that yes. word. But yeah. <laughs> Uh, you have films, I can say cinema, I can say movies, I can say flicks, I can say a lot of different things, but I'm not ever going to call this content. 
Mm -hmm. Um, you know, today's day and age, you, you, you know, I'm going to like date myself and sound like an old fart, but you know, it's like, it's hard to watch something by accident today because you have to pick it. You have to go on Netflix or Hulu or HBO max or wherever. Nobody's sitting on like AMC and like browsing (laughs) the movie. (laughs) Right. And and, you know, and it's like, you know, you, you, you might spend a half hour, you might spend more time trying to find something to watch than you do watching it, but you're in command. And, you know, when I was a kid, that wasn't the case. And, I, you know, I, I thought I was like just, you know, over the moon delighted that we occasionally had HBO, that we mm-hmm. had cable was like a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so likely that's what it was. You know, likely this was like something where I was like up at, you know, in the middle of the night in my bedroom on my probably would have been like a 12 inch TV. Yep. With the and uh, rabbit, rabbit, ears. rabbit ears. But, yeah. you know, but we did have cable you know and so i had like this this i i my room for a large chunk of my childhood was like in an unfinished basement and i like right. lived at the end of it and it was like bare concrete walls with like with like the top you were half. the elephant man i was <laughs> i was the <laughs> elephant man yeah i know I, I you know it's funny that you mentioned that i do often use that line to my wife i'm not an animal i don't know if she <laughs> believes me still yet to this day but yeah. uh but yeah i mean you know it's so it's like my cave i mean it's like this almost literal cave and i had this like piece of coax that was like strung from the rafters you know in this unfinished ceiling and it like came down and connected to this tiny little 12 inch you know tv i think it, i think i actually was like lucky enough to have a color tv by then because the first tv i had was black and white for the biggest you know for a large chunk of my childhood mm-hmm. and i'm sure this film came on so i saw it you know two three years after its after its theatrical release likely on hbo and i'm sitting you know alone uh in the middle of the night uh and and watching this film and it really blew me away and i didn't I likely had no idea who the hell Francis Ford Coppola was on any conscious level at that point in time. Uh, you know, e- even though I may have likely been familiar with Godfather, I don't think I really knew directors by name or anything at this point. You know, I probably was 10, 11, 12, something. Uh, maybe Spielberg was the only person I really understood to be a director who made films. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I mean, I just it's it has for so long been such an important film to me, and that importance has changed. I mean, when I first saw this film, I I probably resonated more strongly with, you know, I was captivated by this idea of leaving the Midwest and of going west and of like kind of fulfilling a certain destiny. I you know clearly this film has kind of these mythic like mythological undertones right these kind of like like a lot of great stories there are these kind of universal truths that are embodied in these characters and embodied in this story and you know that likely just really resonated with me i think Mm -hmm. uh i was captivated by the motorcycle boy and um you know this idea of this like this quiet wisdom after having gone on this journey and it was a journey that I wanted to go on and I was excited to take. And, and, and now, you know, the story means a lot of different things to me though. you know, at that time when I saw it, I likely, I'm sure I was old enough to have had a brother, but we're 10 years apart. And so he would have been very young and I was young, Mm -hmm. but over time, the meaning has really changed a lot to me. When I watch the film now, you know, what resonates with me a lot is the story uh, kind of, you know, it's still that growing up in the Midwest and wanting to leave that. Um, and, and and certainly I did not, by any stretch of the imagination, have a familial situation like I didn't have, you know, didn't have a father like uh, Dennis Hopper portrays in this film or anything mm-hmm. like that, you know, not even remotely. I mean, the opposite of that. Um, 
But still, it was, I, I think, this very natural desire to want to leave where you're at and strike out on your own and make your own way and be your own person. And, you know, for whatever reason, existentialism has kind of like always spoken to me, which I guess, which is an extrapolation of, of this idea of like westward expansion if you're an American, which is kind of, you know, realizing that, that, uh, that you're in control of, of your purpose and that you get right, to build yeah. that and that you get to decide that. And it's, it's both a blessing and a curse that uh, it's, it's, it's not a given. So you do have the, you're empowered to define your own purpose, but then you also have, have the responsibility of defining your own purpose. And so I think that's very much a part of what this film's about. And, you know, of course, time is a big uh, part of the story as a theme. And that spoke to me. I mean, I don't know why, but when I was a kid, I always had this fear of running out of time. I always, I was like always terrified that everybody around me was going to die and that I was going to run out of time. And I don't know what in the heck still to that day, to this day, what that's about. But I mean, even as a very young child, I was like always terrified my grandparents were going to die any minute or that my parents were going to die. That You know, <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like that, you know, I was going to run out of time and I wasn't going to be able to do the things I wanted to do in life, which it's kind of nuts to think about it now. It's like a 12 year old worrying about that. But it did. I would just cry. Uh, all the time about that. Every time I would right, like, right. my parents would leave, for, my grandparents rather would leave for a visit. I had this period of time where I would just like sob that I was thinking like everybody around me was going to die and I would run out of time. So those were things that spoke to me about it then. I mean, also too, just on a surface level, it, you know, you talk about how images, um, you know, the images are so powerful in this film and they speak to you on such a primal level and it's not about plot. And, you know, a large part of it is that I could try to explain to you why it meant something to me, but I don't know if I really, I can't explain all of it away. Yeah. The yeah. images are so powerful. Mickey Rourke's performance was so captivating to me. There's just something kind of primal about it that, that just captivated me. But well, I mean, again, it's, it's interesting that you say that because it's, it's similar to kind of my response to, to um, Butch Cassidy, which was, it's, it's interesting being put on the, the podium and kind of saying like, you know, yeah. explain why this means something because, <laughs> yeah. because especially when you see it at such a young age, um, it's difficult to really talk about what, you know, like, again, like last week I was talking about, okay, there were a few things in it that, that made, you know, I grew up hiking in the Rocky Mountains. So there was like aesthetic things there that, yeah. that made me connect to it. And you're talking about, you know, your brother and things like that and growing up in the Midwest. But when it comes to like the really like pin, I'm sure there are other movies set in the Midwest and about longing to leave the Midwest that didn't connect with you that, yeah. that you know that that you know you don't really feel so it's, it's such a combination it's almost like a perfect storm of like it is a thousand different elements that right thing come at together the right time and, uh, and yeah. that's a great feel you know that's a great great feeling um when yeah when a movie speak like i think that's the thing when a movie speaks to you um I recently i had a similar experience uh probably not recently but within the last four years i think it came out um ladybird the greta gerwig film okay um i i really liked that movie a lot and and uh you know it was a similar thing where it was like it just something on a very fundamental Clips. level just exactly clear. like it was just like i every not necessarily that i like related to the character as you know as as much Literally. as i'm sure that you're not matt dylan you weren't yeah. probably matt dylan as a kid um you know you weren't going out and having gang fights and, and stuff like that but, <laughs> well you know but there's let's a keep yeah, i don't know that DL. about you yeah i know <laughs> yeah. perhaps you're yeah it's, that's the life you left behind in the midwest but um <laughs> i i will not give away all my secrets here on the podcast yeah so. <laughs> and and but again and it's like i'm not uh i'm not uh uh 
the carrot lady bird in that movie but there's something yeah. again just about like the almost a desire element of it and just the circumstance and the things yeah. that just go on well, in the movie that it almost makes it feel like it's like this like other part of you like you and another life or yeah. something it's, it's interesting oh, that's a you know and, and i do want to add too i want to i i think you're right i really like uh how you just put that and i want to add to that too because not every film does this or not every work of art does this so now fast forward 30 plus years later and i'm watching the film to uh, i actually watched it uh over the course of i watched it a couple times over the course of last night and today and this morning in preparation mm-hmm. for this podcast and now very different colors emerge <laughs> no pun intended it's a black and white film <laughs> but but very different texture emerges now for me a lot of different things stand out for this film and i, I was actually um emotionally impacted by this viewing it really caught me off guard it it knocked me off my feet i was surprised at how emotionally impactful this film was by the time i got to the end of it and in very different ways now what stands out to me more about this film is my own history of so i did leave the midwest and i did move to california and a lot of california does get in the way of making it to the ocean mm-hmm. and i i and and i you know i left home i didn't make my way out to the to california until later but i i left home at 18 and i left a, a younger brother who was eight um who i was close to i mean still am but i was close to him even though we were 10 years difference and i left like like all kids you know i left for college or like most kids do i left for college and i'm 18 and i'm so absorbed in my own life and my own adventure that i i frankly didn't think about very much the fact that i was leaving my brother right right and and what kind of impact that would have on him and it wasn't until much later that i've started to understand what an impact that had on him and what that you know and and what that kind of means what the cost of like striking out on your own sometimes can mean for those around you um and and he even came out and I, I won't go so far as to say followed me out to California. I would never be so vain as to think that that was his impetus for coming out here. It, mm-hmm. it was likely some of his reasoning, but he followed me out to California later. Um, and so there's these strange parallels to our to my personal story in relationship to my brother. And, and there are even others that I won't waste all of our time going into great detail here, just from the perspective of kind of what our personalities are like you know that i kind of can very much relate to mickey Rourke's character and there are mm-hmm. aspects of matt dillon's character that i can see in my brother in some kind of high level generic ways but just a lot of things seem to co- so so now it's a very different film to me none of that existed none of that existed when i first watched this film and it first kind of burrowed its way into my heart and mind and now it's grown into this and if that's not the definition of some you know kick butt art then i don't know what is yeah no yeah something that can kind of you know, again uh, mold and almost um, transform as you yeah. like that there's different aspects to what there's different avenues to, to enter into the movie yeah um, yeah and I think that and again it, what's interesting to me too is I have an older brother but um, I wouldn't say that that my relationship with my older brother is reflected in this movie at all and so it's not something that I you know related to on that level but i and i would even almost say that there wasn't a ton in the movie that i related to really on any level because again it is a very much 
um, I would say, like an American movie. And I don't mean that in the sense of like it's a big Hollywood picture. I mean that it, it kind of exudes this the elements of, of the United States. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as, as similar in a lot of ways and as close geographically as Canada and the U.S. are, there's a lot of cultural elements and a lot of things that are really, really different, like vastly different. Yeah. You know, there's like yeah. canyons between the aspirations and even just down to the idea of, um, you know, you mentioned leaving for college and things like that. Like that's not even really a thing here. People go away for school, but it's not such a huge thing here yeah. as it is as it is in the States of like this, like I'm going out of state for school and stuff. So there's there wasn't a ton of relation for me for it. Um, but what I think is interesting about that is that despite that, it still was very interesting to me. It still was something that almost like I liked to watch as almost an examination of this stuff. And because of that, it almost, but like it was, it was really neat to kind of watch. And, and, um, you know, it's not like I was totally blindsided by these elements of American culture and that I had yeah. no idea that these things existed. <laughs> right. You've never seen um, it before. <laughs> yeah. But, but it was just, it was sort of interesting again to see such like a boiled down version of it. And I think that's really what spoke to me a lot was that yeah. it was, it was like just a thousand different elements of, of, American culture all brought into this really, really well thought out, really well crafted, um, well, almost think piece by Coppola. And which is interesting, too, because the book, I believe, is actually set in the 50s, um, which, again, the 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 movie isn't. The movie is set kind of it's it's I mean, it's obviously contemporary. I think to 60s. The 80s, but, I, I think or maybe it's 60s. 60s. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the I, book but has a very like, yeah. specific yeah, yeah. setting in terms of time. Well, I think it's um, an interesting combination. I mean, you have the, the author of the story, uh, S.E. Susie, Susie Hinton. You have an author. She yeah. grew up in Tulsa. She grew up and I think lived her entire life, if I'm not mistaken, in in that area. Mm-hmm. So you have a very strong singular voice coming from this geographic and cultural area. And then you have uh, Coppola, who I think has, you know, family, like, a, a, you know, different aspect of, but still very strongly American culture, kind of American family culture aspects of that. Um, I mean, even in films like God, the Godfather films are kind of, you know, these extrapolations of uh, American family culture to some extent. Yes, and, yeah. and I, you know, so I think you put those two things together, or these, those two people together, those two minds together. Uh, and I and I feel like that's that's why you have such an important or kind of you know a very strong specific flavor of that of what mm. you're talking about that you can feel as a non Midwestern American person watching this film you know mm-hmm. and it's likely what spoke to me so personally without me even realizing it you know mm-hmm. yeah that's yeah, where yeah. I grew up yeah yeah which is interesting yeah it's a this a, a really neat um, I guess dissection of like yeah why it kind of affected each of us because i mean you know yeah yeah i think it's amazing i mean let's like so it's it's i always love to start there it's the our kind of personal relationships to the film i i again like i keep kind of reiterating but that's it's so interesting to me Mm -hmm. uh i love to compare those kind of things um but let's talk about some other aspects of the film i mean you know coppola starts out uh, by stating that he wanted to create an art film for kids. Mm-hmm. And I watch this film now, you know, I'm 45 years old, and I don't know how, probably none of this really stuck out to me like on a conscious level when I was like 10, but I watch this film and there's like an orgy scene, my God. There's like, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's, it's, yeah, not, yeah. it's not like, uh, 
it's not outrageous in this. I mean, there's a small amount of nudity and it's, yeah. it's suggestive yeah. more than, you know, graphic or anything. So I don't mean to imply that there's like this graphic orgy scene. There's not. But certainly I think it might be more sexually suggestive and, and, and more physical than like maybe any other scene he's ever done in any of his other films. I mean, he very rarely has this kind of, you know, nudity and physical yeah. intimacy. And But there's the cut scene in... in- apocalypse now of like the playboy bunnies and that's in the redux but you know but it's not yeah yeah. especially considering that these are children but again it's shot in a way where it's it's not it doesn't feel gratuitous but for you know but this is like he set out to make an r-rated kids film which is Mm -hmm. like i mean i want to say mind-blowing but i'm just going to say it's like amazing it's awesome i don't you you likely would not see anything like this made today sadly i would say uh the language or if it was it would be you know buried it would you would never, yeah. you'd never you'd yeah never get yeah i don't think it would fly and, yeah. yeah um you know and especially i mean look when you add up all, i mean the fact that it's black and white that's not going to fly the fact that yes, it's got yeah. no plot i mean there's there's basically no plot in this film um it's a it's kind of like a study of existentialism you know mm-hmm. with this like uh overarching theme of time and time running out you know you've got um it, it's a very small film it's a very personal story um, and again, I just, I, I just, I don't know that this film could be made today, uh, which is mm-hmm. heartbreaking to me. Um, and maybe it could, and, and maybe I'm just, you know, maybe it would end up somewhere not in a theatrical release. Um, but, uh, but even in its, even in its day, this film was not very commercially successful no. and it's or only even been... critically. I mean, I mean, yeah. a lot of critics loved it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's only been kind of in hindsight that this, that the film has kind of, you know, uh, developed a little bit of a following and, you know, uh, has kind of garnished some, um, you know, uh, some love uh, in hindsight. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, some other cool things about this film, too, and, and I'm not sure how much of this that you kind of read about, but the process for, you know, the preparation that yes, Coppola yeah. went through yeah. to put this together is like kind of is pretty innovative, especially for its era and pretty unique. I mean, he... He kind of devised this really cool system of almost like, I don't know what you'd call it, like live storyboarding. Basically, they yeah. would, they, they would. It was they sort of had, like an early version of Previs, I'd say. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. It's like totally like, it's like an early version of Previs, but with actual live actors, live mm-hmm. performances, not CGI, obviously. So mm-hmm. they had this big chalkboard. And so they'd have their, you know, somebody there on the team. I don't know if it was specifically a storyboard artist or, you know, production design. I'm not sure. But, you know, somebody would be there and they would kind of sketch out the the set for the scene. And then they would get the actors in front of a blue screen with a few prop, props. And they would actually rehearse like, like a theatrical production. Like if I were putting on a play and I were working with an ensemble cast and I would rehearse this for a couple months uh that's exactly what coppola did which of course in film is extremely rare uh and and they actually would i think they they performed the entire film and rehearsed it and honed it in and you know at coppola worked very diligently and at at like a for a long period of time with these actors uh which i think is fascinating and i think it shows and um you know coppola has also been kind of you know technically innovative as well uh, throughout yes, his career yeah. yeah yeah and uh did you get to see some of that i was really impressed with that i didn't i didn't see i haven't seen the actual like footage of those rehearsals yeah you know, but i am definitely gonna look it up after because that sounds like not only does it sound very interesting but it sounds like a really useful tool 
Um, I've done I know, huh? in the past where I have used my like one of my you know one of the things that I do for previs is um, I'll take you know I just actually for the feature I'm doing went out to the, one of the locations the other day and what I'll do is just basically bring my phone out and sort of point it at something and <laughs> uh, like use my fingers in front and sort of say like okay here's our two actors here's where you're standing <laughs> in the frame and then you're finger coming puppets. up this way you it do ba- finger literally puppets. is finger puppets yeah and so I just basically narrate these videos and then I'll do some of the camera movements very simply of course not like yeah. on a tripod or anything yeah, yeah. Um, and just That's with my awesome. phone but um, it's one of the things that I really, and I don't do it for the whole movie. Like I've never, I've never done that. But um, it's interesting that we bring this up now because I didn't even know that he had done that. And I think that that's a really, really, almost like ingenious way of well, being able to plan something like that, especially because he had such, you know, it was kind of a movie that was made on short notice in a, yeah. in a weird way. In a weird, yeah. I'm curious. I mean, I have a request. I, 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 I would love to see like a scene of your finger puppet theater. <laughs> gladly <you> ever... <laughs> it's honestly do do... all of the cast and crew that i send it to say that it's like their favorite things because it's just like they okay. they always they always will bring up the fingers whenever you know I you've got to do right when you when you have a release on physical media you've got <laughs> to include like the finger some, puppets the finger puppets right as like an extra or a featurette or something you've got to <laughs> like i i'm putting in my request now i want to see it i am like excited i can't wait so, of course. Yes. you know, yeah. um, but th- I mean, that's awesome. I mean, I- I've always been fascinated, too, with, you know, and I know he did this a lot uh, with Outsiders as well. I mean, there was a long, extensive, you know, uh, casting and rehearsal process for that film. So, yes. you know, a lot of these actors who were in The Outsiders had already been through this long process uh, with The Outsiders as well. Um, and I think, you know, especially working with younger actors now, clearly, all of the people in this film are very talented and they've all gone on to show that they're talented. Every one of them have had mm-hmm. an interesting career. Um, so, but, but I think, you know, e- even with very talented people, um, I, you know, I, I think a rehearsal process is usually a productive thing. And unfortunately it doesn't happen very often in film because of budgetary constraints. Yeah. Um, but but it's something I I frankly just also really enjoy having come from theater. It's a process that I actually enjoy both as an actor and as a director. So I was particularly fascinated about this, and I would be curious to explore modern technology that would enable uh, this kind of pre-visualization plus rehearsal process kind of combined into one. And it's kind of like motivating me to look to see what kind of technology might exist out there to do this, you know, in a modern way without, you know, drawing on a big chalkboard. I don't even know how they did that. It was like they somehow had a chalkboard that digitized the chalk drawings, creating a sketch that they could use in blue screen. I don't even know how they did that, but it was like a giant tablet. So it's probably like an app you can get on your iPad now and do that, you know. Um, too bad I can't draw, you know, worth two, you know what? Me neither. But... <laughs> <laughs> Me either. So, yeah. I mean, so, speaking of drawing, speaking of painting, speaking of painting with light, let's talk about cinematography. Do you like that? I'm like yes. so good with segues. I'm yeah, proud no, there of you my go. segues. <laughs> it's like a second nature. <laughs> it's like second nature. I mean, the cinematography, and I, I think is one of the first. It's it's to me, it's the first thing that's well. The score stands out instantly, but we're going to get to that. The stores, the score stands out instantly. That that percussive Stuart Copeland score, but the cinematography. I'm sure was that probably something. I mean, right away you noticed instantly. I yes, mean, yeah, yeah. It, well, it, I know. I mean, I know just on a basic level that the the influence is very interesting. But again, the 
part of the things that were really interesting to me were the things that that seemed to again kind of go beyond those influences and, and mm-hmm. the almost like the i wouldn't say the onset choices because i don't think that they were like improvised by any means but the the coppola choices uh to me were were what i really liked that again i i like seeing things like that where it's you can tell the influences of something you can tell again with the set paintings um mm-hmm. or the time-lapse photography that he kind of used from Koyanis Katsi and was inspired by Koyanis Katsi to do, or the very like German expressionism. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, exactly. There's the, um, the painted shadows there. I mean, just the fact yeah, that it's black yeah. and white, like high contrast. But then contrast. seeing a director kind of take that and yeah. morph it into their own thing yeah. is always what's what's kind of the primary interest to me is, yeah. is you know, well, how does somebody move beyond the influence? Stephen Burham kind of, shot it. Yeah. And yeah. he, if I'm not mistaken, he was the the DP, the cinematographer for um, Outsiders, right? Yes, yeah. I, I think most of the cast and crew carried over, uh, or especially most of the crew was carried over from the Outsiders. Yeah, which is which is really amazing to me because it mm-hmm. shows this range that I mean, I I personally was, I mean, obviously, like you know, when I first watched this film, I didn't know, you know you know it's Burham from eat adam or anything else i mean i that would have never crossed my mind but now as an adult watching it i am really impressed that he shot both of these pictures they look so completely different yes um yeah. but i mean yeah i mean immediately this high contrast uh beautiful black and white photography that to me just is mesmerizing i i am just mesmerized by the quality of this photography the the I think, you know, 35 was the longest lens they used with the exception of one small, you know, walk and talk scene where they used a longer lens. And I'm not sure what, but probably a hundred plus, um, you know, some of this stuff is shot on a sub 10 millimeter lens, but they've framed it in such, I mean, it's just, a, it's just captivating. Um, they've got, there's so much smoke and fog. I mean, it's amazing how they make Tulsa look like a post-apocalyptic wasteland. I'm like thinking about Mad Max yeah, again. Yeah, the smoke was something that really was interesting. Like it, that, what I think was really interesting to me, and what really stood out to me was the that there's this. You see the smoke. You know, the the, the opening shot is the clouds passing overhead, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then it's like the clouds are in the city. Like there's always yeah. almost this constant, like almost cloud movement or mist or fog or smoke that's moving really quickly through all Everywhere. Of the cityscapes and all almost that. Almost every scene. Which obviously, of course, is intentional. I mean, it's very clear that they had set yeah. up some sort of, you know, machines and generators to do that. But but I thought it was really neat that um, it's like bringing the sky down. Like it was such a That's an interesting interpretation. Yeah. I've never seen that in a movie before. And then even when they're, you know, that it's like, it's not time lapse because it's when they're sitting and they're talking when he and um, Nick Cage's character, who's, what's the, Midget is the name, right? Uh, yeah. Um, when they're leaning outside the little milk bar Smokey, Smokey, Smokey. Oh, Smokey. Okay. There's uh, midget, another character mid- named Midget. Lawrence, yeah, Lawrence Fishburne is, is Fishburne. Midget. Okay, okay. And Cage is Smokey, yeah. Because they don't, they don't really use names too much. Not too much, the names yeah. are very, very, you know, lingo-ish. But, um, but there's, yeah, he, uh, Matt Dillon and Nick Cage's characters are sitting outside this milk bar, sort of near the later, latter half of the movie, um, and they're discussing something, and, and you know, the, the clouds and the reflection of the um, Well, they've got that beautiful the special are, effect shot. Yeah. That's a, it's it, a really it, beautiful, I th- it's some well kind of projection done. shot. Incredibly done, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and there was a lot of reproductionist as well because the the fish being in color was also reprojection. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. That was the way that they could do that before any kind of computer you know process was available. Yeah. Uh, they, you're right. They shot a plate of uh, 
of Mickey Rourke and Matt Dillon and pretending to be in front of a aquarium. And then they shot a color mm-hmm. plate of the actual aquarium with the fish and only the fish had any color in them. So when they superimposed that over the back plate, you had color fish and black and white uh, actors. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, it's so interesting. But I'm, you I'm curious to know how they did that shot of the fog of them leaning against the wind. Like, I'm actually curious well, what it, process that was. I wish that I could reiterate flawless. to you. Yeah, yeah, I wish that I could reiterate to you exactly technically how they did it. But I can say that on the Criterion Collection, they actually do have a really wonderful conversation between the, um, uh, the, the cinematographer and the production design head and they actually discussed that and explained that shot in length. And I am so sorry that I cannot here reproduce the perfect technical explanation. Well, for hey, how that's, they did that's that. homework for everyone who's listening. It's to homework that. for everybody. But but it, it, it they did they did um, you know they, it is kind of a couple plates where they've got uh, Nick Cage and mm-hmm. they've mm-hmm. got uh, Matt Dillon speaking in front of the window. But they put some kind of coding or something on the window and have some kind of projection of this time-lapse photography shot in a totally different place and uh and my explanation is not doing it quite justice but it it is awesome and i highly recommend everybody Mm -hmm. check it out um there's a lot of actually fantastic i mean it's funny that this theme deals with or this movie deals with the themes of kind of like the quick passage of time that like Mm -hmm. as a kid things seem like eons again but that that you know things are passing so quickly that you had this exact, you know, fear as a child of, of like this, you know, idea that when your grandparents were leaving, it was going to be the last time you saw. Like yeah. you almost on the opposite level felt that quick passage of time. Well, um, it is, is kind of neat. And you yeah. see, you know, clocks are a common theme. I mean, there, I think there's practically every scene of this film has a clock. And if there's not yeah. a clock in yeah. it visually, then the score uh, has like, some yeah, kind of ticking yeah some clock ticking or heart beating i mean it's it's it is so and you know some people a criticism might be made that some of this is on the nose um and and maybe that's valid in some places and you know coppola even maybe kind of admits to that a little bit but you know what i think it works and so whatever yeah (laughs) i mean it's also it's 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 an art film. You're allowed to yeah. be on the nose. <laughs> Come on. I mean, <laughs> I think, no you know, rules. let's talk, let's talk a little bit too. Cause you, you know, you're right. I mean, we talk about all these things, the wide angle, the black and white, the, the smoke. And, um, it's funny. Uh, you talked about how that really stood out to you. I like your kind of your, your idea here that it's almost like there's this, there's a lot of this time-lapse of the fast moving clouds, but then you have this fast moving smoke down below. And it's almost like, you've brought the clouds somehow down to the earth or something. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Uh, you know, for me, it's so funny. I just accepted, I just accepted that there's like smoke everywhere. I don't even remember like thinking anything about it. I never even questioned it when I was younger, but in the commentary, Coppola talks about their kind of inspiration for some of this, at, at least as to kind of like ground it in some kind of reality would be that in the area they would burn grass to in yeah. control in controlled burns to yeah. you know to kind of keep brush from getting out of out of hand so mm-hmm. that's kind of like their inspiration for that or at, le- at least they're they're kind of like we can use this explanation justification kind of, yeah justification yeah. for grounding it you know um but it's so funny that 
I, I didn't even notice. I mean, not on, not on a conscious level. I didn't even care, you know. But if, of course, you watch it, though, and you look at it, and it's like these, you know, there's an example where the kids get off the bus. It's Diane Lane and when they're Matt fighting. Dillon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, Sofia Coppola, they get off the bus, and it's just like, there's just like giant smoke bombs going off everywhere. Yeah, it looks like they're walking <laughs> through like a, 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 a nuclear mi- wasteland. It like it's, does. It's, it's, it's spon- but again, it doesn't... It, it works. Doesn't, yeah, it doesn't it like works. taste like I wasn't sitting there going like, oh, come on. This is, you know, ridiculous. I was sitting there going yeah. like they're having a tense moment in their relationship. And, and it's yeah. like this again, you get it's it's like a motif. It's it's this motif of like, again, because because, of course, the, the clouds, you know, quite obviously and quite literally are ref- referring to the passage of time. And stuff yes. that it's like every single mistake he makes in the movie, every time he makes a bad decision. Yeah, there's this like reminder that like time's ticking, like you're not going to have a lot of time. And, yeah. And so I thought that I think I think that's really interesting that that. Um, yeah. Again, and, and again, like we talked about with the clocks and things like that, that in the music score and stuff that it's kind of on the nose, but that's not. But it works. They yeah, pull it, it off. It works. And yeah, I, think. I think that it's yeah, I think. Yeah. It, it, uh, it just adds a layer to it that I think is really neat. And it's not, you know, it's not like every movie hazes and uses smoke and, and especially back like pre 2010. Right. It, so many movies were just like, you know, you just feel, we talked about ET when we were doing the Spielberg episode, how those rooms are just like loaded with smoke. Right. Or any and Tony just, Scott film, yeah. any Ridley yep. Scott film, the Scott yep. brothers, they love the haze. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, and I think it's a, I think it's a great, I honestly really like I love it. Of, I like, love the it. Fog and haze I, and things like that. So I'm so motivated to shoot in black and white. Now I can't tell you, you know, having, having just recently watched the elephant man, having just, just you know watch this again i am yeah. so motivated to do a project you know, i'll tell you i've never uh, you know as, as aside from like small small projects i've never done a full like whether it's a short a feature or course yeah. a feature in in um in black and white i've never and i've always wanted to but i've just never really found the right project to to kind of like do it that. really I think speaks to again me. i think it's i think it's really a specific what is thing it? that you've got to find i don't what know but it? i love it what i do love it, it. I, I'm, and again, I'm, this movie would be totally different if it was in color. It would totally be, different. Yeah. A completely different experience. I, it'd yeah. also be a completely different experience if it were different actors. I mean, let's yes. talk a little bit about these yeah. performances, man. I mean, ah, it's 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 tough that you find so many young performers. And I think, you know, uh, especially you know, with Outsiders, you look at who was in that, you look at who's in this. I mean, Coppola clearly is and and throughout his entire career is like you know very very good at finding and recognizing talented people mm-hmm. and then and then working with them well and we already talked about the rehearsal process for this film but you know Matt Dillon I think is perfectly cast for this I it, which yeah. is but it, it, it's this is not who he is at all it's not like he's kind of this dumb midwestern kid like bad boy yeah he's yeah, not yeah. even close yeah no. but he but he just he works so well and the performance that I really really uh want to want to kind of just talk about just because i was so moved by this is, is mickey Rourke's performance it's, in, it's you incredible and I, yeah you and i talked a little bit about this before we started we were kind of warming up but you know for i think for for younger people again i'm like i feel like i'm always talking like i'm like people's grandpa for you younger people <laughs> back in my well, whatever forget <laughs> it too bad sorry yeah um, I can't, I can't wait to see what I sound like when I'm 65. Oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> but, but, you know, but it's true, but it's true though. I mean, you know, I grew up, I was like just coming of age, just becoming kind of like cinema aware when Mickey Rourke's career was first taking off with mm-hmm. Diner, with this film, with, you know, a Popa, uh, Greenwich Village, um, 
Barfly, his early work is just outstanding. I cannot mm-hmm. recommend enough for those of you who are unfamiliar with Mickey Rourke's earlier work to go back and watch it. And it is such a heartbreaking shame to me that I, uh, I don't, not that I want to try to speak for him, but it's my understanding that he kind of sort of developed a resentment for the craft and the mm-hmm. industry very much in the same way that uh, Marlon Brando did in his later years. Yeah. yeah. And it, and of course it shows and his life took a different trajectory. And um, I, I think he's a very different, you know, performer and person now although of and course the projects that he takes on are he's totally still different. and he still yeah. has these flashes of of greatness the wrestler from 10 years ago or so mm-hmm. i think is is an example of that greatness that's still there but i mean not I, iron man 2 no. <laughs> <laughs> ah, oh, not iron man 2 um but I, I i but i just i would highly recommend and 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 i th- you'll kind of maybe get a glimpse of why there was so much like ooing and awing over this performer when he first mm-hmm. hit the scene i mean he is just his performance is outstanding yes outstanding and in this film it's it's so i think one of the interesting things is that the that coppola specifically told him to kind of study like napoleon and, and things like that and i think yeah. that you really see that come through that that he's this really gentle like wandering philosophical kind of soul yeah, he's um, like a fridge philosopher, I think, yeah. who was like, um, was kind of, you know, used as kind of a... Like this gentle giant almost. A, a, but listen to his voice, like the vocal yeah. nature of his performance is so impressive. And if um, you want to see a, another really impressive Rourke uh, performance that was, you know, cut out of a movie actually was The Thin Red Line. Um, ah. He's got a scene, a deleted scene in that movie, and and Rourke actually said at the time, and still ah. kind of refers to that as he thinks that it's some of the best work he's ever done. And this uh, is so on I really the, recommend like a, that. Is there a criteria? Um, I think collection? the I think you can find them on YouTube. Honestly, I think you can oh. find the Mickey Rourke scene just online. Yeah, oh. um, I'm sure it's on the Criterion as well. well maybe but, we'll um, do the Thin Red Line at some point when we do oh, some Malick stuff. That is one of my favorite movies. So and we, I would have so, be happy well, there to. you go. It um, sounds like we might know a future episode right off the bat, yeah. and we'll save it for that. Spoiler but I, alert! But uh, spoiler but no, alert. I, I but, think that it's just it really go like this movie really goes to show how like you said like how talented and not that Matt Dillon is is no. a lesser actor by no means no no, no. um but i think that it <laughs> to to use the term rourke you know dances around dillon um mm. is is not again it's not me putting down matt dillon's performance because i think every performance no, in this movie is so special the roles are different yeah really great but but rourke really is the like he steals every scene he's in even yeah, he, you know it and it takes Think of how I don't know how specifically how old he was in this movie, but young, um, twenty nine. It's insane to yeah to be twenty nine and to be stealing the show from Dennis Hopper when you're yeah. on screen with him is is nuts to me. And Dennis Hopper's great in it too. Um, yeah, and Dennis still, Hopper is great in it. I mean, Dennis it, Hopper. What I think is actually just to to really quickly talk about him is is he when Dennis Hopper gets in this movie, like when he comes on screen in this movie. Mm the energy shifts. And I think that's really interesting. Mm. Like that. It's like this entire, it feels like there's just like a gravity that suddenly like enters the scene. And yeah. And, um, yeah. I, I just, I found that watching it like that. Well, it's like the scene. sons, like the, the sons, the, <laughs> the sons yeah. are orbiting, orbiting around the father. I mean, there's, yes, you're yeah, right. Yeah. There's this gravity in it. It's, it's the first time that this family has been together in at least a couple months. I mean, it's funny. I think they say in the film that the motorcycle boy, which is Mickey Rourke's character, he mm-hmm. does not have, uh, an, he's not named in the book or in this film on purpose. 
Um, and that again kind of speaks to some of this like mythological underpinnings that I talked about earlier, but, um, uh, they kind of want him to exist outside of, of this world, you know, in a bigger, larger mm-hmm. way. But apparently, you know, he's only been gone for a couple months. Well, and you talked about as a child for most of us, you know, two months is like a lifetime if you're yeah. 16 or, you know, um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the elder son comes back. And and now they're here in this in the this this children or you know or grown children or older children are orbiting this father. But yeah, it's it's just fantastic. I, I it's my understanding too that uh, Hopper was a little bit of a challenge to work with. Surprising, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> but but I yeah. I think the scene I think the scene where they are at the bar, which is just exquisitely shot, where you oh have my God. this beautiful yeah, wide incredible. angle with Mickey Rourke and Matt Dillon kind of. Uh, bookending the foreground and you have Hopper in the middle midground uh, and it's so beautiful um, this deep focus shot uh, I think that something like you know 40 plus takes for that because Hopper was just like not not doing whatever it was that Coppola yeah, wanted from him but just, or something know, yeah or, or 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 maybe it was even, I think there, there's some outtakes where Hopper's like I want to do it again I want to do it again can I get another take can I get another take <laughs> but well it's I mean, it's interesting because it's like this because there's the one shot that I mentioned that I actually screenshot it because i i loved it so much in that exact scene where where hopper exactly it's like this close-up of hopper you see the reflect looks very similar to a lot of shots of martin sheen and apocalypse now mm. but of course the black and white just adds the simplicity to it that's really beautiful um and it's just like it's unlike any other shot in the movie mm-hmm. uh it's this steady close like just this like probably shot on a 50, straight on longer than any other shot that can't lens like i think i think it's probably the only shot in the movie that's shot on anything longer than like a 35 yeah and um it it's just this incredible incredible it's like the cigarette smoke is raising rising above them and you just see this again we talked a little bit about how it feels very theatrical and i think that you know mm-hmm. there's no performance in this movie um that that kind of speaks to that more than dennis hopper's that he like all the all the performances this movie are very very theatrical in a, in a way that it feels like it, in a very good way heightened very thea- heightened, heightened. And, yeah but hopper's is i could almost see you know hopper entering a scene it feels like he's walking on stage like it feels it's it's mm. bizarre like it's this it's it's i can't you know much like you trying to explain but not in a bad movie, way not no, in a exactly. Bad way. It's, not it's, in a distracting this, way. It's like it's like a know. it's a feeling. It's it's not necessarily like a literal like you, you know, you feel like he's walking out of the wings and coming on. Yeah. But rather that this, you know, there's there's a difference always. An entrance on stage, to me at least, is always a little bit different than an entrance in film, just because there's the stage is such a like contained area. Right. And I think that that's what I feel like with Hopper's role in this is that it's like because the way that it's it's you know written and the way that it's presented is very theatrical that it just it it reminds me a lot of almost like a tennessee williams character like that's Mm. kind of what he reminds me of is this character that's plucked out of again this like mythology of americana this mythology of southern southern yeah and and this this, like dust bowl kind of like aspect to him and and that he comes on and he's like this this wall of, of enigma and mystery but also this you know kind of like he does seem relatively caring in a way that you know yeah well and there's these moments of like wisdom right there's these moments of like it's not that he's i mean i i he understands the world 
He understands mm-hmm. his sons. He understands what's going on. And he understands, I think, why he drinks. This is not a, an ignorant character. Yeah, uh, no. and, and we don't know much about him. And we don't, you know, we hear very little about, you know, par- a big part of the plot. We haven't talked much about plot. And you and I aren't really consumed with trying to regurgitate a plot on these podcasts. But, you know, other aspects of, you know, that we just get through these snippets that, their mother left their mother moved to california their mother is living with some producer maybe still we don't know we don't know anything about their mother we don't know anything about why they left we don't know did uh their father start drinking before and that's why she left or is he drinking because she left we don't you know yeah or is is the motorcycle uh, boy just telling this to you know matt dylan to we don't know yeah yeah it's never it's never we never see the mom we never yeah it's, yeah. it, and and it's all the better for it. It's yeah. all the better for it because if those kinds of things were explained so explicitly, like most films feel the absolute undeniable urge to do, this mm-hmm. film would not allow people like me to give it the meaning that you know to be an active audience member, which is what I want to be, which is what I want from a film, mm-hmm. and have a film become a part of my life and grow with me like this film has grown and that's the detriment i just you know for for fellow filmmakers out there when you want to explain every single thing away in your film that's what you take away from an audience just fyi (laughs) yeah exactly Uh, i get on my i gotta have like a moment of soapbox right i think that's like like that should be a thing like i'm just i'm like a big gas bag of just like i'll just and i think i think that it's, it's (laughs) <laughs> it's been a pretty good, like a through line for this podcast because I think that you know even a few episodes ago when we did the Silence of the Lambs, yeah, one of Demi's like big filmmaking philosophies is that he would rather the audience be confused for five minutes than to explain away every single thing in a shot, right? Which is so, which is so it's so ah, and it is very you know, rare. It, it's so well, it's day. terrifying. It's terrifying because and I will even start to see that in myself as a producer helping other people's work, mm-hmm. uh, and I have mm-hmm. to really catch myself. I will like if any storytelling book or any screenwriting book rather that you see today or any you know any advice that you're ever going to hear from any kind of it it's oh my gosh the last thing you could possibly do is have an audience confused oh my goodness don't ever have an audience confused don't ever have any you know um it, it we're so we're, we've moved from a place so far away from that where there's mm-hmm. such a fear uh, this corporate fear of, uh, you know, oh my gosh, do we have if we have any vagueness or if we have any potential for confusion, we're just going to lose or our any audience. potential for interpretation, God forbid. <laughs> you know, and like and I mean, and to be fair, there is a fine line. I mean, I understand to some extent. You know, it's like I never felt confused watching this film. I want to make that clear. Yeah. I never felt like that. I was confused watching this film. There was a one moment that I didn't understand what was going on, that I couldn't follow the intention of the filmmaker, that I couldn't follow what was happening. Not one time did I feel confused. So vagueness and confusion are not the same things. Mm-hmm. They are not the same things. So and to, I, guess, I mean, perhaps yeah. to to kind of wrap that up in a neat bow again. Um, one of the things that, like, a, a an experience I had watching a movie recently was I was watching To the Wonder, which is, you know, speaking of Malik, as we were just discussing yeah. a bit ago. Um, this It's a movie from uh, 2012 that Malik made starring Ben Affleck, and uh, it's um, didn't that, get yeah. great reviews, um, but it's it's on Prime, if anyone has Prime. it's it's I, I, I really liked it, though, and one of the things that very much related to my experience watching this movie um, was... There was a point where I missed a few lines of dialogue at the end of a scene. I can't remember what happened. I think like an air, my air conditioning had gone on, so I had to turn it up or something. It was just 
distracted for yeah, a moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, do I go, do I rewind it back? And, and, and then I kind of sat back and laughed to myself. And I was like, no, I have no idea what's going on anyway. And I'm loving it. any. Like, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> like, I've got no idea what's yeah. going on. Well, but I, I, I was just, again, it was like, in th- I under, I think it was this, like, it's like uh, this subconscious understanding. Like, on a fundamental level, I understood what I was yeah, feeling and I was absolutely. connecting with the movie. It's a visual but just because medium. I didn't understand exactly, like, okay, why are they at this store And that's now? the thing. This isn't literature. Yeah. This isn't yeah. literature. And I just, it, it, it's not literature. It's moving mm-hmm. pictures. And there's a, there's a place for literature and it's vital. But that's not what we're yeah. talking about. It is film. So, I mean, I just, not to go too far down the rabbit hole because I do want to talk a little bit about the score before we wrap up. But, uh, you know, just to kind of piggyback on what you're saying a little bit, I mean, you know, uh, uh, one of a film that 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 I very much am a fan of and that I very much enjoyed watching was um, Malik's. I think is it the New World, the New World. With, yes, New World. Yeah, yeah. Um, Two thousand five. Jamestown, yeah. I think or it six. was, or um, and uh, yeah, it's I, the Pocahontas story. But Pocahontas it's story. Yeah, yeah, more dramatic sense. Than and Pocahontas. It, it, <laughs> it, and it's funny. I I saw that film in like a really weird way. So usually, like I'm I'm pretty conscientious about my film watching in the sense that I, I prepare a space and a time and I'm very focused, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm particular about the visual and audio circumstances of my viewing, right? Um, but it just so happened that I was, at the time, I was living uh, with roommates in a home that I was not mine. So I wasn't in charge of the television or the audio or anything else. And this is a while back, we had like, you know, one of these ancient, huge Mitsubishi rear projection TVs that are like super dim, super fuzzy. You know, it's like each scan line is like a half inch wide, you know, because yeah. it's like yeah, yeah. 65 inches of 480, you know, and yes. <laughs> and it's, it's like projection. Those were the days. I had those were the days. Yeah. And and so it's like this horrible picture. Uh, and, and, and I think it was something like we had two huge like stereo speakers, not like audio visual, like not surround sound, but like just two big, huge, like Serwin Vega stereo speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and it was probably like, you know, the amplifier was like not able to decode the surround sound correctly. Yeah. So, so like all of the like center channel dialogue was lost. So mm-hmm. I'm sitting here watching the film. I didn't put it on. I just happened to like be in the living room when a roommate was started watching it. And through the film, I could understand maybe, maybe 15% of the dialogue, maybe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was so captivated by the film. I was blown away by the film. It was an extraordinary experience. It was profoundly moving. And that just is like every time I, I get in a place where I get like so wound around the axle about dialogue when I'm working on my own stuff, I just remind myself, I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> Remember that time when you couldn't even hear the dialogue and you kind of like it was like half mumble, like the most of the movie was mumbling and it ended up being an extraordinary experience for you. I was like, just remember that. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, it's and it's totally like, again, film is more than than the script. It's more than. Yeah, it's um, more than dialogue. dialogue. It's and yeah. performances are more than dialogue. That's, that's, that's theater. Yeah. That's theater. Theater yeah. is about dialogue and television to great extent is like theater. And yeah. that's about dialogue. But that's yeah. not that's not film. And it's not to say the dialogue's not important. Of course it is. Yeah, but, or that or that there can be dialogue heavy films that are, are great. But but um, it's a different beast. It's a different beast. Well, let, yeah. let's let's wrap up here with with a topic that part of the film that I think is really vital to its personality and impact, and we've not touched on it yet, and that is the score. 
Mm-hmm. You know, Stuart yes. Copeland of, of the, the police, police yeah. uh, did the score for this. It's a percussive, heavy score, mm-hmm. and it is absolutely unique. It is totally untraditional. It is, it, it's, it's the vast majority of it is comprised of a lot of loops. There is a lot like car horns and, mm-hmm. you know, and like, jack like almost sounds like it's, it's like drumsticks on like tin cans there, at some point. There's too, yeah. so many, right. And everything is about time ticking. So there's yeah. this constant tick, 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 tick. And there's, there's heartbeats. There's, there's all of these. And, you know, this is way back in the analog days. And so they, they literally, like today you go on Pro Tools and you make a loop. And that just means that you have yeah. a snippet of something that repeats, but you know, this is literally like they're they're splicing actual tape loops together on a big, mm-hmm. you know, like twenty four track board, and they've got you know literally looping tape. There's a um, reason that they were called audio engineers, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. But it's you know, I just think it's an extraordinary uh, piece, and I think the film. I mean, it it's so important to the success yeah. of this film, to the feeling, to the tone. Of this not, film. Um, I, I would say, not expected. Yeah, um, yeah. So tell know, me, tell me. Like, again, there's there's a lot of point. Like there's there, again, it's not. It's definitely you know, as in case you couldn't tell, it's not a traditional film score. Um, but it uh, again, there's this this element to this and the outsiders um, that where it's like Coppola uses score in areas that I wouldn't have necessarily expected him to, and it's not a bad thing. But I always thought that was really, and I remember noticing that, and it was one of the things that has always stuck with me about the outsiders, even though I haven't seen it in. So if I was in grade eight, it's been. 10 years at least since I've seen that movie. Um, and uh, yeah, 10 or 10 or 11 years. And that, that the fact that that always stuck with me was, is something that, you know, again, was like one of those things that I, I just always thought was kind of odd about it. Yeah. And then when I was, it like brought me back in this movie when I went, you know, there's a moment when he's talking to his girlfriend outside and they're like, there's this, like this almost, drum beat that's got a little bit of a more of a like kind of a melody to it but mm. but not very melodic yeah and um they're just, they're just standing there having a conversation and it's yeah. like there's this there's this music below it that doesn't really fit but it's but time. again it's like it's, it's exactly it's, it's like always this, like it's, this chasing this chasing it's they're this wasting chasing. time and, and it, everything has an urgency even when they you know right after that they go yeah. inside and Sofia Coppola is sitting beside them who's his girlfriend's younger sister is sitting beside them on the couch and it's like this urgency like go away we don't have a lot of time like get well, out of here and, and it, it, it reminds me a little bit you know like uh like the the birth history of this podcast talking you know and Herzog and Herzog almost always has these very unique and non-traditional uh scores for his films um, and, and I feel like this is very much at home. I, I could very much see the mm-hmm. score being in a Herzog film. Totally. Um, totally. Yeah. And, and I just, I, and, and, um, it, it's, it's really quite extraordinary. And there is, is really an exceptional, um, like, uh, featurette on the production of this, of the score with Stuart, um, uh, Copeland on the, uh, criteria collection disc which i really highly recommend people check out but i i don't know i just want to you know we can wrap up now i just want to say i mean i there's so much more that i could say about the film Mm -hmm. we've really only scratched the surface in an hour and 10 minutes here and you know i i could pontificate on this (laughs) well past when people would want to listen to it but you know i i just can't recommend enough if you've not seen the film check it out i the the ending of the film I was really again. I just went. I, I was surprised at 
the emotional impact the end of the film had for me still to this day mm-hmm. um it's it's just this the motif of the rumble fish we hadn't talked anything about that but this idea that that a caged being will consume itself for those around it if they have no freedom mm-hmm. is another that fights itself in the reflection and yeah that and, and um this this just really beautiful la- the you know the, the finale of the film the climax of the film where the motorcycle boy ricky work uh, mickey works character you know he doesn't rob this pet store he uh releases the animals in the store and i and there's a really quick fun story about that so um one of Coppola's first films, The Rain People, starring mm-hmm. um, isn't that uh, is Michael Caine? No, who's in that? Not Michael Caine. Uh, oh God! Uh, oh it's, come on! Uh, I've totally. I'll get it up real quick. <laughs> We're like you're like how fast can you type into Google? <laughs> the urgency. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, exactly. Uh, we need a soundtrack. James Caan and Robert. Caan is yeah. what I meant to say. There's yeah. the there's and a Shirley scene. Knight. There's a scene in that film where where I think if I'm not mistaken where. Khan works at like a, a weird petting zoo or something if i'm not mistaken there's like these a lot of these small animals in this mm-hmm. in cages and he releases these animals in that story yeah. and uh so so the scene is here in this film right where where the motorcycle boy uh comes back he breaks into this pet store and he's releasing these birds and all these animals in this cage well it's in the book and Coppola's you know he's working with the script on the script with se uh hinton and uh he's like hey this is so funny this is kind of a weird coincidence i i shot the scene in an early film of mine and she's like oh that's real weird because i actually was watching a movie with with james Kahn. i don't remember what the name was and there was this <laughs> scene where he was releasing all these animals and it totally inspired me to write the scene in the book oh wow <laughs> goes full circle that's hilarious i know so oh my it's, gosh i know so it's that's, like that's well, insane yeah it's like you know who would imagine but it's just this beautiful idea of like he's got to bring these fish these only i these it's the only thing in the film that has any color in it except there's an exception i'll talk about it in a second but but to carry them to the the river to set them free and mm-hmm. the authority figure this this ever looming authority figure which we hadn't talked about this police officer yes. shoots yeah. him dead um and then uh Matt Dillon carries these the fish the final length to the and sets them free in the river and Matt Dillon's character Rusty James has this this moment of color vision when he's uh, after he does that and he's being held briefly by the police before they let him go um it's just wow i might get emotional talking about it now but when that that last scene where where uh rusty james finally does make it to the ocean where he rides his motorcycle and it's this extraordinary shot i think where he's at the pier he's at the ocean there's these seagulls everywhere and he it's it's just um I don't know. I don't even know where I'm headed with this. I'm just describing the movie now, which is like the worst thing you want to do. I'm just describing scenes, but but oh my god! I mean, I don't know. I just it's it's really extraordinary film. I don't know. That's yes, all I've yeah. got left. <laughs> I'm getting carried away. No, it's, but, I mean it, again, it, it, I think it. I would just go watch. It's on. It's on YouTube. It's on the Criterion. I think it's there's a Criterion release. Yeah, it? yeah. I yeah, think it's online. It's online. There's a Criterion so, release. But uh, but anyway, uh, yeah. Well, with all that being said, you know, Cullen is always man. Uh, it's a pleasure. I like so enjoy uh, 
talking about these films with you, mm-hmm. and especially this one. And it's especially cool to me to get to share it with somebody who's not seen it before. So I'm yes. really happy yeah. that it's a film that you enjoyed. And for everybody listening, uh, I, I hope if you haven't seen it, go check it out. It's really worthy of a watch. And until next time, uh, we wish you all a wonderful week. And we'll, mm-hmm. we'll see you soon. Yeah, bye-bye.